You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. Though located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, you will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival preaching from the pulpit of North Valley Baptist Church. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. Pastor and I talked a little bit in the ready room before and it's true. If you think about it, the other day in the office, I was listening to, to singing. I don't want to say singing. I want to say I was listening to singing because that's, but anyway, I was listening to people sing. And it was singing from in the mountains of Kentucky and West Virginia where they come together. And if you've never been there before, the churches, oh, regular Baptist churches, doctrinally we wouldn't agree with them, but they're singing I like. And they'll sing in rounds one man will sing a verse, and then everybody else will echo back to him. And I was listening to it in the hallway, and Brother Apusin comes walking down the hallway, and he said, I thought that was Native American singing going on there. And then Brother Shilton came in. Remember that? You don't remember. Anyway, Brother Shilton came in there for about four hours. Uh, Brother Shilton came in there, and he said, what are you listening to? And I said, it's regular Baptist singing. He said, I've never heard anything like that. I said, you know who Ralph Stanley is? He said, where's he pastor at? All I know is this church. I said, he's not a pastor. He's a bluegrass singer. But anyway, it kind of sounds like that. I say that to say this, culturally, I'm maybe out of place culturally from where I grew up to live here. It's different, just totally different. So what would draw that? What would bring us here? And really what it is, it would be the heart for revival in this place. Long before I ever met you and long before you ever knew who I was, you had a broadcast called Revival Time. And 16 years ago, I started a broadcast because Brother Clyde Eborn gave it to me for free on FBN. I didn't know what to, I called it Striving for Revival. All of my adult life up till almost five years ago was spent, like he said, every night, literally in a different church. I was home about 90 days a year, and that's it, 90 days. I sleep in my own bed. And the reason we did that was, maybe I was naive. I don't know if I was naive or whatever. I, I honestly believe that God could send revival. Amen. That it's not over till God says it's over. That if God wants to do what God used to do, God could still do it in our day. And I tell you, I got so sick and tired of hearing people talking about what they used to do and how they used to run and what they used to see. And I wanted to see it in our generation. And I'd preach in churches of seven in Alabama. I'd preach a church in tw of 20, preach in uh, crowds of thousands, but always try to tell them, God can turn this thing around, and I believe he can. Don't you believe that? And I know pastor believes that. We believe that. I'm praying that we'll see that. I was able to sit in the governor's mansion in Kentucky and talk to the governor of Kentucky. He was a, a conservative, independent Baptist, and we talked about the need of not conservatism, but the need of revival in churches. And that is the only hope that we have. And I want to try to preach to you tonight with... I'm here all the time with the heart of an evangelist tonight because I really have a desire to see God do something in this generation. I want you to look with me in Job chapter number 14. And I want you to see what the Bible says here in verse number 7. In Job chapter number 14, Job is lamenting the frailty of man. How weak man is, how few his days are, and how full of trouble they be. And God, I believe, gives Job an object lesson that Job maybe didn't understand in the moment because Job doesn't know what we know because we have a New Testament. 
But I want you to see the object lesson unfold in verse number 7. Here's what it said. For there is hope of a tree. If it be cut down, that it will sprout again. And that the tender branch thereof will not cease. Though the root thereof wax old in the earth and the stalk thereof die in the ground. Yet, watch this weird phrase. Through the scent of water. It will bud and bring forth bows or boughs like a plant. Job is sitting as a tree cut down. His life has been destroyed. Things he holds dear have been stripped away. And as Job sees himself, he has been brought low. And God in his goodness put a tree in the life of Job. You read your Bible and you find God's good at providentially planting trees in the right place. He puts a tree there and Job sees that tree and he makes the statement, when a tree is cut down, there's still hope for it. That's different than a dog. That's different than a passing rain shower. Once those things are over, they are over. But a tree, if it's cut down, there's still hope for that tree. It could grow again. I don't know if you've ever cleared a field before or cleared a hillside. But every, every spring we would clear hillsides, multiflora rows and different things. That's like briars and thorns. And we'd cut it bare down to the ground. I guarantee you that would grow back in just a few weeks. My grandparents had two bushes up behind their house. I, I would say they're still there. I don't know. But they're called rows of Sharon's. And those rows of Sharon's would grow so high and so tall and so big that you'd prune them. And sometimes you would do a hard pruning on them. And you'd cut those things down to almost the ground, maybe a foot above. And all it was was the stalk. And it just looked like sticks sticking up out of the ground. But then spring would come back around. And all of a sudden, that which looked like it was dead, green shoots would come off of it. And here's why. There was something going on down beneath the surface that what took place above the surface couldn't mess up because the roots were down deep and nourishing the stalk in the ground. Just the scent of water is all it needed. Not an ocean, not a stream, not a majority. Just the scent of it. For a little while tonight, I want to preach on this thought, the scent of water. Let's pray, God, please help me. I pray for your power. I pray for liberty. I pray you'd help us, Lord, to be stirred tonight. Thank you for this morning, how it helped us. And God, I pray you'd break us. And God, help us to uh, get our fallow ground ready for rain. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a generation that needs, just like Abraham, to against hope believe in hope. Tonight, I'm thankful that hope doesn't just grow in the field of favor. But I'm glad hope can rise up out of the mire. To hope against hope means this, hold on to hope in spite of obvious difficulties. Regardless of the crumbling circumstances, hold on to hope. When it looks like everything else in your life is losing, you can't afford to lose hope. Like a stream in the desert or one star alone in the night, against all hope, the Bible says, you and I must believe in hope. When there is no way, I'm glad there's still hope. When it makes no sense, I'm glad with God there's still hope. When the consensus says it's over, I'm glad there's still hope. I may sorrow, but I don't have to sorrow without hope. I may fear, but I don't have to fear without hope. The Bible said in Hebrews 6 and verse 19 that hope is the anchor 
of my soul. And you know what an anchor is? An anchor is that which is cast down below the depths and latches onto something that you can't see and holds the ship steady in the midst of the storm. And my Bible says that that's what hope does in my life. That hope can hold me steady with that which is unseen. If you were to go to the catacombs in Rome and walk through that area where those persecuted Christians would hide, you'd find there's 66 individual drawings of an anchor. And that's because those Christians had to hold fast to something that could hold fast to them in the midst of their persecution. Tonight, few things are as powerful as hope is. Man can survive extreme conditions if all he has is a measure of hope. Tonight, it's hope that keeps the pilgrim pressing toward home. It is hope that keeps the soldier fighting in the battle. It is hope that keeps the sailor from abandoning the vessel. It is hope that keeps the sower plowing the field and sowing his seed. Tonight, hope does not have to be administered to my heart in heavy doses. God doesn't have to deliver to my soul in a bulk order. It doesn't have to roll wave on wave into my spirit like the waves of the sea. But as long as I can get a hold of a grain of hope, as long as I can find a ray of hope, as long as there's a little inkling of hope, you and I can make it tonight. I want to say there may be seasons where Ahab is on the throne, but Elijah, there is still hope. There may be a moment when the meal barrel runs low, but widowed woman, I want you to know, there is still hope. There might be a day where you stand beside a sealed tomb, but I'm glad Mary and Martha, there is still hope. And in an hour of such discouragement and things that can derail the average man, I'm glad I can declare tonight for the child of God, there's never a season, there's never a situation, and the there's never a moment that is a hopeless moment. My heart may be made heavy by the things of this world, but I'm glad my hope is not found in the things of this world. From the nursery to the mortuary, from health to illness, from the mountain to the valley, when I have abundance or if I find myself with nothing, I'm glad I still have hope. Jeremiah 7, 17 says, Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. Tonight I'm glad I can can say that our God is still God and our God has never had to have favorable circumstances to be in control. He's never had to have easy odds to be God. He's just as much God tonight as he ever was. And I can say there is still hope because I know that there is a still God. I'm not talking about a wish without warrant. I'm not talking about some fanciful fairy tale, but I'm talking about a hope that is anchored in victory because I have every promise of God at my disposal. And if God be for me, who can be against me? In spite of the opposition, in spite of the odds, and in spite of the occasion, I'm glad that there is still hope. If you and I would step back tonight, we'd see it rising over the fog of doubt, higher than the smoke of despair, distinguished among the stench of despondency. I can smell the scent of water. Our Bible is a book of hope. It's not just heaven's book. It's not just a holy book. I'm glad it's a hope book. And from the very opening chapter of Scripture, the story of hope begins to unfold. And if you smell it right, you'll get the faint scent of water. In creation, my Bible introduces me to God. In the beginning, God created. And as God is there wrapped in the darkness, in that hour of chaos, God is yet in control. And at the right time, God says, let there be light. And there was the 
scent of water. There was a garden called Eden, a perfect paradise. But Satan entered into that garden and he spoiled the soil and man fell into sin. But I'm glad in that same location that God promised a prophesied seed that would come that would bruise the head of Satan. And there was the scent of water. There was a day where wickedness was so great that God decided to destroy the world with a flood. Man had waxed worse and worse until God could stand his sin no more. But I'm glad the eye of grace began to gaze down on this world. And there was a man that stood for God. And Noah heard the voice of the Lord. And there was the scent of water in a pagan city called Ur, surrounded by his idols, wrapped up in his lostness. A man named Abraham heard an unmistakable voice. And God said, I've got a city and I've got a country and I've got a plan for your life. And there was for Abraham the scent of water. There was a mountain called Moriah. On that mountain called Moriah, Isaac struggled up the mountain. He had the load of wood on his shoulders. He bore the burden and he walked up the mountain. He was laid on an altar and a knife was falling toward his breast when suddenly there was a ram wrapped in a thicket by its thorns. And on that mountain, Isaac, he got the scent of water. Moses was on the backside of the desert, a fugitive, a murderer, a man in hiding. But one day, as he tended the sheep of Jethro, he looked yonder on a mountain. He saw a bush that was peculiar because it burned and was not consumed. As he entered the presence of the bush, God spoke to his heart and he said, I am that I am. And Moses could smell the scent of water. Again, Moses at the brink of the Red Sea and on the edge of death stood. There was no way through that water. But then Moses lifted up his rod and God lowered down his hand and God made a dry path through the waters of the Red Sea and the Israelites could smell the scent of water. One day outside the walls of Jericho, Joshua stood. They had to take Jericho to take Canaan land. Joshua couldn't bring the walls down. No power of man could bring them down. But the angel of the Lord showed up and said, Joshua, don't you fear. I'm going to be on your side and lead the battle this week. You just march around the city and watch the walls tumble down. And Joshua got the scent of water. I think about Samson. Head shaved, eyes plucked out, grinding in the prison house, turning a circular pathway, chains on his wrist and on his ankles. Samson led to the Philistine temple. They thought his story was told, but I'm glad as that strong man of God reached his hands out to the pillars that God heard his prayer one more time and he breathed in deep and got the sin of water and God brought the temple down on the Philistines. I think about it. He lost his touch and he got it back again. There was a day of compromise and corruption, but Hannah prayed. Hannah was, uh, was tormented by her, her, her mocker, her, uh, this woman that just accused her and tormented her every day, but Hannah prayed on. In that day of compromise and corruption, God heard her prayer and sent a man of God through Hannah, and she got the scent of water. There was a valley impossible opposition. Goliath stood there before David, a little ruddy shepherd with a sling and a stone. But before long, the giant was dead and Israel was rejoicing. They had the scent of water one day under a juniper tree. A lot of discouragement, a lot of doubt. God whispered to Elijah and there was a scent of water in the dead, in a bedroom of a dead boy. Elisha stretched himself out. He prayed and breathed and all of a sudden that dead boy 
resurrected from the dead. And in that room, there was the scent of water. One day in a valley full of dry bones, Ezekiel stood. He looked around and those bones were scattered about the valley. An army that had lost its life. And God said, can these bones live? And and Ezekiel made the right statement. He said, only you know that, God. He said, go ahead and preach them in it. He began to preach to the bones and they began to come back together. And then he prophesied to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the wind of God. And the wind blew through that valley. And all of a sudden they rose up, an exceeding great army. You see what happened? In the valley was the stench of water. There they are in a furnace. That furnace heated hotter than it's ever been heated before. Those three boys are taking their stand and now they're being put in the furnace of persecution. But they found out that the God before the furnace is God in the furnace. And they met a fourth man in the fire and they smelled the scent of water. Oh my, I think about Jeremiah. We've heard from him the last several Sunday mornings. Jeremiah was hated. Jeremiah had no converts. Jeremiah had no following. And then Jeremiah was cast in a pit of mire to suffer as a prisoner. But as he's down in that pit, he writes Jeremiah 33, 3. Call unto me. And I'll answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. And in the midst of that mire, he had the scent of water. Oh, I can see it. Uzziah's dead. He's been placed in the ground. Israel's in mourning the loss of a king. But Isaiah decides to go to the temple. He can't look on a throne and see Uzziah. But he looks higher to another throne and sees the Lord high and lifted up. And he hears, smells the scent of water. There was a silent night in Bethlehem. A star shone above a stable. Shepherds heard the angels sing. A mother swaddled her baby in a voice like no other voice for the first time cried out into the atmosphere and ears of man and there was the sin of water. For years, Simeon waited on the consolation of Israel. He'd been faithful to stand in the temple. He'd been faithful to wait on the promises of God. I would say some said you might give it up. Hope is gone. It's not coming. But one day he got to see it with his own eyes and hold baby Jesus the answer to his prayer. He got the sin of water. After 400 years of no prophecy, after 400 years of silence from heaven, all of a sudden a voice piercing the sky like lightning in the night came crying out. And John the Baptist blazed the straight trail for the coming Messiah. And there was the scent of water. There was a man tormented by devils. He dwelt among the tombs. He cut himself. No chain could bind him. But one day he woke up crazy but went to bed in his right mind. Why? He got the scent of water. I'm glad that's our God tonight, by the way. I'm glad that in wrath he'll remember mercy. I'm glad when we shut the door he'll knock and ask us to open it. I'm glad when you find yourself in the far country. He stands at the gate to welcome you back to the farm. For many years, this poor little lady battled an issue of blood in her body, but suddenly her fingers stretched out and it simply fell on the hem of a garment. And when it did, doctors couldn't do it, but she was healed. What happened? She got just the scent of water. You know tonight lepers can't be cleansed by any means of man. These 10 men sat in this certain village. No doctor could heal them, no remedy for them. But one day a man passed by and they cried out for mercy and those 10 lepers got cleansed. You say, how'd that happen? They just got the scent of water. Four days is a long time for a body to lay in a grave. Long enough for it to be unclean ceremonially and corrupt physically. 
That's exactly how long Lazarus has been wrapped in grave clothes and lying in a tomb. All these friends have gathered for a funeral, not a birthday party. They thought they'd be crying, not rejoicing. But would you know it at the sound of the voice, Lazarus, come forth. He which was dead lived again. And all of a sudden, the atmosphere was filled with the scent of water. One day on a hill called Calvary, a thief hung on a cross. He was condemned and rightfully so. He was undeniably guilty. He was publicly and outwardly a sinner, and everybody knew it. But with whatever strength he had left in his body, he turned his ravaged neck to the man in the middle. And with a waning voice, he cried out in faith to Jesus. And there he was. He went to the cross in bondage. But on that cross, he was set free. You say, what happened in his life? He just got the scent of water early one morning. Mary went to visit a tomb. She walked in the garden, but not to see the garden. She went to see a grave. She went to see that tomb. And as she walked to that tomb, she saw the stone rolled away. And she looked in and saw no man. Then she heard a voice say, Mary. It wasn't the voice of the gardener. It was the rose of Sharon who resurrected from the dead. And she got the scent of water for for days, 120 people. People had been praying in an upper room. They'd been tarrying for the touch of God. They'd been begging God for his promise. They were fearful. They were hunted. They were criminals, but they prayed on. I'd say a lot would think it's not worth it. You might as well disband this crowd right now, but I'm glad they pressed on. Then all of a sudden on the day of Pentecost, the sound of a rushing wind filled that room. Cloven tongues like as a fire fell on each of them. The power of God invigorated the new church and all of a sudden revival came to town. Why? Because of the scent of water. Saul of Tarsus was a murderer. He hated Christ. He hated Christians. He was the enemy of the church and loyal to the state. He advocated for the martyrdom of Stephen and tortured who knows how many others. But on the road to Damascus he's got a scent of something. And he ran into the Lord and all of a sudden his life was changed. Why? The sin of water. Later on in his ministry he was in prison but he was with a man named Silas and those two were too saved to be despondent. They decided to have a camp meeting in the prison cell so they just went ahead and sang in the midnight hour. They prayed in the midnight hour and suddenly the earth began to shake and the bars busted open and that jailer so hardened by his lifestyle fell on his knees and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved. And all of a sudden, there was the sin of water. There on the Isle of Patmos is John. John has been boiled alive, filleted, if you will. He's now sentenced to hard labor, busting rocks on that craggy island. He looks around and sees prisoners. He looks up and sees buzzards. He looks within. Probably not a whole lot of hope, but I'm glad he was in the spirit. There on the Lord's day, and all of a sudden, the sin of water filled that island, and he heard a voice behind him like a trumpet, and he met with the Lord. I want you to understand that's what happened when you got saved as well. When you and I got born again, we were pretty far down. But aren't you glad water always races to the lowest point? I'm glad when I was at my darkest and my most lost state, I'm glad that's where grace found me. And that's where mercy walked in. And that's where I got born again for the sin of water. And what I'm saying tonight is this. It does look hopeless. And it does look bad. And it does look bleak. But our God does not need a leg up. He doesn't need a hand. He doesn't need 
any help. He doesn't need it to be easy. He doesn't have to have a clear path made. He is the way through the wilderness. And tonight there's still hope. There is still hope for revival. There's still hope for ministry. There's still hope for souls. All we need is the scent of water. Oh, we don't have to have a sea of stars, just a star. An ocean of water, just a drop of water. We don't have to have a bulk order, a galaxy of it, just a little bit. Go ahead and ask Sarah, is anything too hard for the Lord? And now she'd laugh at the right time and she'd hold baby Isaac and say, no, I don't reckon anything's too hard for the Lord. I'll say this, God has never retreated in the battle. He's never refused to bear the burden. He's never stumbled under the care. He's never failed to supply the food. He's never ceased to be faithful. He's never lacked the supply to meet my need. Even when it's dry, even when it's arid, even when it's destitute, there's still with God the sin of water. He's my oasis in the desert. He's my spring in the valley. Like David, he's my brook in the way. He's a well that never runs dry. Psalm 146, 5, happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord. My only agenda with the message tonight is this, this just to remind you, no matter how cut down it looks or how dead it appears, there's still hope. Psalm 42 and verse 1. As the heart panteth after the water brook, so my soul uh, panteth longeth after thee, O God. So you can let the storm rage on this side. I'm glad it's all right on that side. And all hell can break loose down here, but there's no hell breaking loose up there. There's still hope in God. And in these dark hours and dry days, I'm glad there's a sin of water. You study your Bible, water is forever linked to God. God is forever linked to water in your Bible. In fact, often you find in Scripture, God is nearby the water. In creation, it only took a couple of verses for God to introduce us to water. In fact, the very place God moved first was on the water. God drowned Pharaoh in the water. Amen. Think about this. God nourished his people by drawing water out of a rock. The priests could not minister until they cleansed themselves and they washed themselves in the water. The Israelites had to cross through the water if they were going to get into the promises of God. It was from a brook of water that David drew his stone that killed the giant Goliath. It was by a brook of water that God sent ravens to feed his prophet Elijah. It was in the waters of Jordan that Naaman was dipped down and came out cleansed of his leprosy. Psalm 46.4, there is a river the streams rose to make glad the city of God. And he's Ezekiel 47, the prophet sees a river. Most major cities are built on a river, but Jerusalem's not built on a river. But in his vision, he sees a river flowing from the mountain through the temple into the Red Sea in Jerusalem. It's a type of the Holy Spirit of God. And I like that preacher. He gets in up to his ankles, but that's not enough. Then he gets in up to his waist, but that's not enough. And then he gets up to his chest, and that's not enough. And then he has to get in over his head so deep that he can swim in the water. Think about Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry began at the water. John was baptizing one day at the Jordan River. And then Jesus comes and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. And Jesus goes into the water and he's immersed there. And he comes up and God said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. When Jesus preached to Nicodemus, he told him, Man must be born of the water and of the Spirit. His first miracle was turning water in 
to wine. Many of the disciples were called by the water. Jesus preached many of his sermons at or on the water. Peter came to Christ by walking on the water. The Ethiopian eunuch said, hey, here's some water. How about I get baptized? In heaven, there's a pure river of life and a sea of glass that glistens like a crystal. You read your Bible. The Holy Ghost is likened unto water. The Word of God is likened unto water. Our placement into the body of Christ spiritually is likened unto baptism alluding to water. Water is potent. It provides life. Water is powerful. It changes things. Water is precious. It's the most essential commodity in the world. Water is purifying. It removes all the filth and obstruction. 71% of the world is covered in water. And where fresh water is, there is life. But where fresh water is not, there is death. Now, the text, Job 14, brings us to a strange phrase. In fact, it's a phrase that I never would think to use if it was not in the Bible. We'll look at it here momentarily, but think with me. Job has been going through it. He's 14 chapters deep into his despair. He's wrapped in a whirlwind of emotion. He's battling himself and he's battling Satan. He's conversing within. He's conversing without. He's being accused by his friends. Bible scholars say that Job is the first chronologically, the first book of the Bible that was recorded. And it's interesting how the very opening book recorded, the first book recorded, is not about the salvation of a sinner, but the cleansing, the consecration, the confirming, or conforming rather, of a saint. Job is addressing God in chapter 14. The chapter focuses on, God's understand, or on Job's understanding. Now think, Job has a finite mind like you and I. And as Job is writing, he commentates on the frailty of man, the shortness of his life, the troubles that are in this life, and the sinfulness of the life that we live. Now from Job's limited understanding, he doesn't see much hope for himself. Now, don't be too hard on Job. Consider what Job has gone through. It would be hard to keep a shout and a smile and a song on your heart going through what this man has endured now for 14 chapters. He's been through enough to destroy 10 good men. And from his standpoint, it looks like the outlook is haunting and it's very heavy. And as Job sits in this chapter and converses with God, suddenly he begins to see a tree. I said it a minute ago, it is interesting how God is so good at providentially placing trees in good spots. In Eden, he planted a tree of life. At Calvary, he planted a tree for us. Amen. Thank God for the trees that key has climbed up to see Jesus. Perhaps Job is sitting in one of his fields. Maybe he's sitting in one of his fields that have been consumed by the fire that fell in chapter 1 and killed his servants and consumed his sheep. He's sitting there looking out on a field that now looks like the aftermath of a war. And as he looks out on that charred field, maybe he sees the remains of a tree. That tree used to tower into the sky, but now he thinks of that tree. He looks on that tree and the charred stump thereof, and now that wood only rises a foot or so off the ground. Maybe Job remembered that tree and thought that tree was glorious. That tree was strong. That tree was fruitful and it provided shade. 
Maybe Job remembered the moments the wind would sing as it went through the branches of the tree and he could see in his mind his children as they played beneath it. But now that tree has been cut down. Judgment had fallen and the glory had departed. Its branches were ashes. Its fruit, memory. No shade now from its blackened form. And I'll tell you what that is. An object lesson in hopelessness. To look at what it used to be and then see what it's become. Where Job sits and as Job, whether he sees it physically or just in his mind, in Job's estimation, from a human standpoint, that's a hopeless situation. That tree's been cut down. And I think Job probably began to think of himself. It's amazing how God will use physical things to teach us spiritual truth. And I think as Job sat there, he thought, I was that tree. I was a great man. I was a tall tree. I towered over others in my day. I was fruitful. I was blessed. I was wealthy. I had a family. But now he sits in ashes just like the stump. And he's been cut to the ground. He lost his children. He lost his wealth. He lost his wife. He lost his friends. And he lost his health. He knew what it was to feel the axe head of judgment fall to the trunk of his life. And he'd been cut down. But I want us to see what our Bible says. Because the Holy Spirit led Job. And aren't you glad for that? Because if it had been a book of man, it probably would have been a pretty dark thing here. But the Holy Spirit leaves the hand of Job. And in verse 7, look at what Job is led to write by the Holy Spirit. He said, for there is hope of a tree. If it be cut down, that it will sprout again. And that the tender branch thereof will not cease. Though the root thereof wax old in the earth and the stalk thereof die in the ground. Can you imagine that? You know what that is right there? That is revival talk right there. You know what that is? That is resurrection talk right there. You know what that is? And that is hope talk right there. And I don't know, but maybe God in his goodness allowed Job to sit there and in real time see a miracle take place in the life of that little tree that had been cut down. Maybe as Job was studying that fall and tree and staring at the charred stump and looking at the ashes scattered about it. I don't know, but maybe, maybe God, either in Job's mind or even in front of him, he led in his grace and goodness, all of a sudden something catch the eye of Job as Job sat there in utter hopelessness. If a tree be cut down, well, that tree's cut down. He's admiring it. He sees the judgment that had fallen, but all of a sudden his gaze fastens fast on a neon green, I mean, shining against the blackness a new shoot that begins to come off the side of that tree that had been cut down. Oh, here's what he discovers. When a stream dries up, it is over. When a breeze blows by, it is over. When a rain shower passes, it is over. When a flood recedes, it is over. When a dog dies, it is over. But that's not the case of a tree. Something different about the tree. Life was rising out of death. A second chance was rising out of destruction. Hope was springing out of hopelessness. The trunk was ravaged, but a little tender shoots brought out advertising revival. Like a little cloud rising up out of the sea, announcing showers of blessings are on their way. Now consider this. If that tree be a physical tree in that moment, Job and the tree, in Job's judgment, it too had been judged. In Job's loss, it too had lost. 
In Job's destruction, it too had been destroyed. But what a lesson for the heart of Job. God used that little shoot on that cut tree to preach a pretty big sermon to the heart of his man. And maybe Job wouldn't understand it till chapter 42. But I believe when Job got to chapter 42 and he thought back about that tree and that shoot and how it sprung out again, he must have shouted just a little bit to see that God brought some goodness back in his life. He'd been cut down, but he rose up again. And here's what he discovered. God does not need the absence of judgment to bring revival. In fact, it usually is through judgment that God brings revival. Here's what I found in my Bible, that hope rises out of judgment like a phoenix rises out of the ashes. Hope rises not without judgment but in spite of judgment it rises to those who believe in God even in the judgment it sees heaven through the dark clouds of the bad day and oh happy day when Job got the message man I am that tree I was that tree I was cut down but thank God there's hope for me in the Lord now listen the key to that tree reviving was not the tree you could you could see but the tree that you could not see it wasn't the destruction on the top side it was the life that had tunneled down deep on the underside. And here's what it says in verse 9. Yet through the scent of water. You say, what's that talking about? Here's what it's talking about. It's talking about the tenacious tunneling roots of that tree that dove down deeper than the judgment and dove down deeper than destruction and dove down deeper than the circumstance. And as they were down beneath the surface, they were tenaciously seeking after that which could bring hope to the tree and life to the tree. It wouldn't let the tree die. There was something on the inside that wouldn't let the tree die. There was something out of scene that wouldn't let the tree die. There was something buried down deep that wouldn't let the tree die. And though the top was destroyed, the bottom was alright and the shoot sprung up because the roots went deep. Oh, I thought about this. The revival of that tree wasn't relying on a shower rolling through or waves coming upon it. It just needed the scent of water. Because there was that within it that was always hunting for hope without. There was that on the inside that was like a, like a, hound, like a hound dog on a tree, just seeking something to keep that tree from dying. Couldn't let it go. It just looked for life all the time. There's something different about the tree than the dog. Something different about the tree than a passing shower. It's the roots that you cannot see. Oh, you and I tonight, you look at top side, it might look charred on top side. I'm about to preach and let it run around this whole place. I'm telling you, it, it, might look, it might look bleak on the top side. It might look bad on the top side. And the average church is dead on the top side. I know that. And our country is going to hell on the top side. And I know that. And I know people are apathetic on the top side. And I know that. And if you and I just are contingent and we live off of what we can see on top side, man, you might feel cut down tonight. I don't know what it is. Maybe you've been sleeping a little, little, uh, just a little through the night and things are cut down or pacing the floor and it feels like things are cut down or biting your nails because it seems like things are cut down. You've been worried because it seems like things are cut down. You've been despairing because things seem like they're cut down. But I'm glad tonight as a child of God that there is something deep down on the inside and that on the inside draws me to hope on the outside. I'm glad I can say tonight it's not over. You say that doesn't make any sense to me. It won't if you're not saved. But if you're saved you know it's never too late for God. It's not over till God says it's over. And when God says it's over we shall wear a crown. Yes we shall wear a crown. And Jesus 
Jesus wins. So what I'm saying tonight is this. Don't be contingent on what's on top side, but dwell deep with that on the inside. You've got water. You've got a Holy Spirit on the inside. You've got the Word of God on the inside. You've got a local church, a well, that you can draw from on the inside. And tonight there's still hope for a tree. If you just get a sin of water, you say it doesn't look very good. It doesn't have to look real good. You say it doesn't look very easy. We don't have to have it real easy. Not a lot of hope. I don't need a lot of hope. I just need an inkling. I just need an ounce. I just need a little bit. If there's just one beat in the heart, one breath in the lungs, one more step in these legs, that's enough for God to work a miracle. God doesn't need it to be easy. Thank God. He doesn't need a remedial course in revival. I'm glad God's advanced enough to bring it anyhow. And if we just trust in the Lord and lean on the Lord and seek his face and let our hope be anchored in God, I believe we can still see some sprouts come out of the tree that's been cut down. Our nation once towered like a tree. Our nation was the envy of the world. Our nation was the model nation. But our nation's been cut down. Cut down by sin. Cut down by silliness. Cut down by iniquity. But I still believe if God wants to, that God can let a sprout spring out of a trunk that's been cut down. I'm not done yet. I gave 15 years of my life away from my family to see America not go to hell. And I'm not ready to sit by and let a few backslidden Christians and a lot of lost liberal politicians send her there in a hurry. We have to fight for our country and trust God for revival. There's still hope if God be on his throne. Oh, the church was a towering tree. The church used to dictate to the state, not cower to it. Politicians used to ask if they could attend and not even ask to say anything. They were just content to sit and be seen because the pulpit of America held sway. J. Frank Norris. Think about turning his city upside and drove him crazy. Fearful. Charles Finney walked through a factory in Utica, New York. And just Charles Finney walking through the factory brought such conviction on the people there that they fell out of their chairs and got saved. Just because he walked through. Think about that. Billy Sunday had come to town. Mafia men would fight against him because of the bootlegging, and he didn't care. He'd take off his jacket, roll up his shirt sleeve. I got a, a newspaper a lady from Ohio sent me from 1911, a Billy Sunday revival on the front article, and said he stripped himself down to his T-shirt and his suspenders and said he crawled up on the pulpit, and he said he dared every one of the ministerial association to fight him like a man. I like that. Bunch of humanistic modernists. Amen. Backslidden lost. Now the church is laughed at. We were talking about it before. It's sort of like a novelty thing, like Barnum and Bailey. It's like they attend it like it's a mausoleum or a museum. No power, not real, just surface, just momentarily making a difference. But by the time you get to the car, no punch to it. I can tell the same 10 people come to the altar every service, the same three old ladies giving the offering every offering. The average young person doesn't want it because it's dead in a hammer or or they've been conditioned to think it's supposed to be a show. But I still think, as long as God is alive, and as long as we've not been taken out of this world, that the Lord would probably be pleased if there's a church or two that isn't dead. Or changing. Amen. Dead, fundamentalism, liberal, vibrant liberalism, both nauseate God. I believe it could sprout again. 
Some of you have prodigal children. A tree that's been cut down. And right now, as you sit in a church pew, you don't know where they are. Maybe not child, maybe just a, maybe a, maybe a brother or sister or a friend, but they're out of the will of God. And the devil tell you that they'll never get right. But Luke 15 is still in the Bible. I believe God could still bring a shoot out of that cut down tree. Who's that lost person that will never get saved? Right now, you know who it is. They're in your mind. They'll never get saved. Why you limit God like that? I thought he's in the saving business. I believe God could bring a shoot out of that cut down stump. I want you to notice, and I'm not going to preach it, just in passing. The consolation of the tree is this, there is hope. You have to just write that down on your heart tonight. There is hope. The worst that could happen is heaven. Number two, but there's the cutting of the tree. It was cut down. But the confidence of the tree is this, the roots still look for water. I want to read you this, and I'll close. The school system in a large city had a program to help children keep up with their schoolwork during stays in the city's hospitals. One day a teacher who was assigned to the program received a routine call asking her to visit a particular child. She took the child's name and room number and talked briefly with the child's regular class teacher. We're studying nouns and adverbs in his class now, the regular teacher said, and I'd be grateful if you could help him understand them so he doesn't fall too far behind. The hospital program teacher went to see that boy in the afternoon. No one had mentioned to her that the boy had been badly burned and was in great pain. Upset at the sight of the boy, she stammered and she said, I've been sent by your school to help you with now. She felt she hadn't accomplished much. But the next day, a nurse asked her, what did you do to that boy? The teacher felt she must have done something wrong and began to apologize. I'm, I'm sorry. No, no, the nurse said, you don't know what I mean. We've been worried about that little boy, but ever since yesterday, his attitude has changed. He's fighting back. He's responding. It's as though he decided to live. Two weeks later, the boy explained that he'd completely given up hope until that teacher came. Everything changed when he came to the realization, and here's how he said it. They wouldn't send a teacher to work on nouns and adverbs with a dying boy, would they? And just the fact that she showed up and spent some time with him he thought, you know what, I can live. Every time you open your Bible, there's a God from heaven that meets with you. And every time you go to prayer, there's a God from heaven that meets with you. And every time we have church, there's a God from heaven that meets with us. And that ought to put a little bit of a jolt in your life. Boy, he wouldn't spend, he, woo, he wouldn't spend time with our church if we couldn't live, could he? Would he? He wouldn't spend time with me in my prayer closet if I couldn't live, would he? He wouldn't meet with us in a men's prayer meeting if we couldn't live, would he? He wouldn't let us run buses if we couldn't live, would he? He wouldn't bring kids to Sunday school if we couldn't live, would he? He wouldn't let the baptistries be stirred every week if we couldn't live, right? So it's not time. What I'm saying is it's not time to cash it in. Take the towel and say, you know what? We're done here. Because as long as you and I are here, somebody needs to serve God. And even if we have the scent of water, we can still see revival.
Thank you for listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. For more information about our ministry or to find out how to get in contact with us, visit our website at nvbc.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.